So, hi everybody. It's been a few weeks since I've been here, and it's really nice to be here with y'all. I, I just, uh, I, I've been very excited about coming together, and I'm glad that you braved the cold and the elements to make it out, and we're going to be looking at First John today. As you've heard the last couple of weeks, we're going to be moving into First John um, in our teaching for the, for the coming months, and uh, uh, yeah, I'm just really excited about this. In college, uh, my concentration in college was languages. Um, biblical languages, and so uh, I did a lot of study in Hebrew and Greek, and um, my, my big Greek project, my, my second year, was to translate the book of First John, and uh, when you translate a book, I mean, it really makes you slow down, like you can't skip over any word, it's easy when you read, like, like words like the, or, you know, conjunctions, therefore, that kind of, it's easy to just like skip over those things, to let your eyes just sort of flow over them to the main thoughts. But when you're translating, it makes you really, really slow down and take it, take it easy. And spending a whole year translating this book, I just, I fell in love with First John, uh, which subsequently then made me fall in love with the Book of John. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited about moving forward into into First John and um, what it is that God has for us. So my task today is to provide an, an overview of the book, uh, a big picture, like from the sky, kind of a perspective on First uh, John. And then next week we'll start getting into the the, the nuts and bolts and go through it um, section by section, and that's that kind of thing. So I'm real excited about uh, about where we're headed in First John. So let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that um, we know that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for our teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And we invite your Holy Spirit to come in all four of those ways today. Come and teach us. um, Come and and rebuke us. Show us how we are not what you've made us to be. Correct us. Show us how to be what it is that you've made us to be. Instruct us, God, by by your word. Um, uh, You know, show us what it means to walk that out in the truth of our lives and reality of uh, the practical ways in which we live day in and day out. So uh, we submit to you, we give ourselves to you, we give ourselves to your word, and we pray today, God, that you would receive glory uh, through our time together. Pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You can take your Bibles and turn to the book of First John. First John's a unique book in that First uh, John is an epistle. It's a letter from an apostle to a group of churches. Now, the, the churches that John would have been engaging would have been in the region of Ephesus. Um, uh, Ephesus is where Timothy, we know, Timothy, the disciple of Paul, um, was placed as a pastor, actually in the city of Ephesus. John would have been a regional apostle to this, to this region. And so there's all kinds of churches and, and groups that this would have touched. The region of Galatia, where our book Galatians is very close to this area. Um, Corinth is just south of here of, of Ephesus. And so th- there's a lot of overlap as far as uh, people and churches that John would have been writing this book to. Um, when we think about the way that the New Testament is structured and the epistles, um, Paul writes all kinds of letters to churches, um, but John does too. And, uh, and John has a particular spin, a particular take on what it means for a local church to be a local church, what it means for a regional church to be a regional church. Because John is writing very apostolically here, right? It's important to understand that John is an apostle. In other words, John is responsible and has authority and oversight of a region of churches, right? Within this region, there are many different churches and bodies and gatherings that are happening throughout this region. And what John is seeing is that across this wide swath of area, um, and uh, that, that he's seeing people, um, believers, followers of Jesus, struggling in their faith. 
And then with discernment, he sees why these followers of Jesus are struggling in their faith. As a result of that discernment, he then writes this book. So as you heard from Justin last week, um, when Justin taught about the four heresies and uh, the heresies that, uh, uh, that John is writing against, um, remember uh, he used those uh, illustrations like Nicolas Cage, is he a good actor or a bad actor, um, you know, uh, dualism, that kind of a thing, and, and he brought these, Garth Brooks was another one. Uh, it was some really good teaching on heresy. That's some of the best teaching on heresy you'll hear, folks. You should listen to it again if you were here last week, and if you weren't here, you should listen to it, period. Um, John sees these heresies taking root and affecting the way that the people of God are, are, are thinking about who Jesus is and thinking about who they are, and he writes his book in response, but he writes it from a very John standpoint, from a very John perspective. John is so unique in the way that he thinks about and engages Jesus and who Jesus is. If you read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all read in the same basic flow and pace and concept. John is completely different. The the, the Gospel of John contains seven miracles that none of the other Gospel writers uh, talk about in their Gospels. John takes this unique perspective on Jesus. We know that John was the disciple who Jesus loved, that he and Jesus had a very special, unique, close relationship. John seems to bring this thing to the front. And people understand that. People know that. People know that John and Jesus were tight. People know that John understands and has a perspective on Christ that is unique. And they know that he has that because of this unique relationship. So when John says to the people... Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John is pulling from his own experience, and he is saying, mark this, this is, this is key, because this thing stands true for you too. John is inviting you to this too. John is saying, I walked with him, I knew him. I saw him with my eyes, I touched him with my hands, I experienced his life in real time, and in real ways. And you are invited into that same experience that we have had. By we, he means the apostles, the disciples of Jesus. The word of life is and can be as real to you in 2015 as it was to John in the first century. That's what it means for John to say, we invite you into this experience. You're not responding the way you should. Like, that should be really exciting to you, right? I mean, I'm excited about this. I don't mean to rebuke you, but take it for what it's worth. Whoa, John walked and talked with Jesus, touched the guy, smelled him after a long day on the road, you know, like engaged him. This is real. I mean, how many of you have ever been like, man, God, my heart is killing. Where killing me. Where are you? John is saying, he's right there. He is right there. The same experience that John had, you have been called into. Like, this word of life is yours to touch and to taste and to see and to hold. The reality of Jesus is as real as it's ever been. Someone say, Amen. Amen. 
Thank you. All right, good. So, now here's the thing about John. Is John is very concerned with Jesus getting what is due. All right, John is very concerned with Jesus receiving what he is due. And he's very concerned that people are coming against who Jesus is. Because that means that Jesus is not getting the worship that is due to his name. And John is going to confront this head-on in language that is very black and white, that is very strong. And there is a chief and core concern that John has. So when we look at 1 John and an overview of 1 John, this is John's main concern. John, 1 John is concerned with followers of Jesus walking in confidence, assurance, and truth regarding who Jesus is. Right? The book of 1 John is concerned with followers of Jesus walking in confidence, assurance, and truth of who Jesus is. And this might be something that feels sort of like, eh, yeah, I'm confident, yeah, I'm assured, I know who Jesus is. Really, what happens when the storms hit? Like, what happens when something that you didn't want and didn't ask for finds you? What happens when you talk to somebody who's smarter than you are and they rip apart your theology? Like, how does that make you feel confident and assured? What happens when you get into some, you know, crazy situation that you weren't sure was going on? What happens when you live a different way at home than who you say you are outside of home? I mean, I don't know about you, but these are things that can actually come against my confidence and my assurance, the truth of who Jesus is. Because who John is going to tell us that Jesus is, I think there is a rub between what we experience and what, who he is. That's what John is certainly seeing in the followers of Jesus here when he is writing the book. John wants you to be confident. He wants you to have assurance. He wants you to walk in the truth of who Jesus is. He wants you to be unshakable that Jesus is yours and you, and you are his and there is nothing that can come against that. Right? He, he wants you to stand bold-faced in front of whatever attack, whatever heresy, whatever false teaching there might be, whatever false emotion there might be, whatever deception or accusation might be coming against you, your ability to stand boldly in front of that and say, no, that is not Christ. And that is not me in Christ. So you can go to your judgment because I belong to the king. Right? This is John's concern, is for you to have that kind of assurance, that kind of confidence, that kind of chutzpah, right? that kind of strength in who Jesus is. His main concern is that you know who Christ is. And as you follow him, and whatever it is, that you do that confidently and with deep, deep assurance, surety, Certainty even. In a word, in the book of 1 John, John is defending the gospel. John is defending the gospel. Which brings us to a uh, logical question. I'm glad you asked it. Which is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? I uh, took a, I don't know, it was a soteriology class in college. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. And this professor, he actually did this, right? This guy was, eh. And uh, he, uh, now he's a good teacher, don't get me wrong, but he would pull these kinds of tricks. And he gave us this study guide for a, uh, it was a midterm, I'm pretty sure. And we had just spent the whole first half of, uh, of the semester walking and talking about Jesus and the nature of salvation and the uh, ridiculous things you talk about in theological school, like the Ordo Salutis and all these fun things. And so we all studied 
you know, our butts off for the midterms. And we came in for the midterm, and uh, he gave us a piece of paper and said, here's your midterm. He said, um, write down the gospel in 20 words or less. All right, there you have it, right? 20 words or less. Share the gospel with me in 20 words or less. I don't remember how I did on that midterm. I don't remember how anybody did that midterm. I do remember thinking, wow, that's hard. Right? I mean, because if you think about the gospel, I mean, you've got the Romans road, which is a heck of a lot more than 20 words. You know, you've got the wordless book, which doesn't have any words with it, but then you've got to explain why it doesn't have any words. So that takes more than 20. And, you know, you've got all, all your evangelism explosion methods, your four spiritual laws, you know, and you've got the, the, the different ways of sharing the gospel. I mean, what we tell you at Cornerstone um, all the time, like, share your story. When you want to share the story, when you want to share who Jesus is, share your story. Tell them what Jesus has done in your life. Can you do that in less than 20 words? I can't. And so th- this idea of, of what is the gospel, John is very concerned in 1 John with protecting the distinct and particular nature of what the gospel is. Can the gospel be explained in yet less than 20 words? You, absolutely, yes, it can. It absolutely can. What John is seeing is that this is getting twisted, and there's, now there's all these words coming into this situation. There's, everything's getting mixed up. and well, Some group of people are believing over here that Jesus didn't actually become human that he was only ever a spirit. Other people are believing over here that, that he started as a spirit and then became human and then stopped being a spirit when it came time to die or, or, or stopped being human when it came time to die. And that, that's weird. And here's these other people over here that had this special knowledge who are enlightened. These folks are oftentimes like middle to upper middle class and they have stuff and they're like, they're, they're in, they watch Oprah, they talk about it and, you know, and like their lives seem just just better in general. They just seem happier and they have inner peace and you know there's this group over here that does that and there's people over here who live this very very strict lifestyle who don't give themselves any pleasure and who are only focused on jesus but john doesn't like that either so there's all this the gospel is this the gospel is this the gospel is this jesus is this jesus is this so i mean a key question is what is the gospel this question is as key today as it has ever been in your life the reason why is because you need the gospel today as much as you ever have in your life the gospel is as important for, for February 15, 2015, as it was the day Jesus died on the cross. All right, so th- what is the gospel is what John is going after on many fronts and in many ways. And answering this question is key. And I'm going to camp out on this for a while because it's important to understanding 1 John. Uh, turn back in your text to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if you remember, Paul, from reading Paul, John says this same basic thing. They are always coming back to the gospel that I preach to you, right? So the gospel that was delivered to us through the ministry of Jesus, this is the apostolic gospel, the apostles' teaching, right? They experienced Christ. Christ gave them this message that is the gospel and then told them to take that gospel and to make disciples through that gospel, that those disciples should be able to carry that same gospel to other people who carry that same gospel to others. So, so people change and methods change, but the gospel does not. The gospel stays central. The gospel stays the same. So the question is, is what is the gospel that Paul received? What is the gospel that John received? What is the gospel that, that the apostles received? And what does it mean for us to carry out that same thing? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, this is Paul teaching here. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. All right, so Paul's saying, I'm going to remind you, this is the gospel which you received in, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. 
right? I love that. Love that Pauline present tense. Salvation is always a right now thing. It's not a back then kind of a thing. And it's not a future kind of a thing. Salvation is always present in both Paul and John's mind. You are being saved. Right? You are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. Right? So where's Paul coming from? This is his gospel. So here it is again. I'm delivering to you what I received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel, in 20 words or less, Jesus lived, died, was buried, and rose again according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. Everybody got it? Jesus lived, died, was buried, and rose again according to the scriptures. That is the gospel. Now, you might be wondering, like, why is this an important distinction to make? This is a massively important distinction to make because you are not being told that. Right? The world's not telling you that, and we have complicated things in the church. For example, if I'm going to share the gospel with you, what's the first thing that I'm going to try and get you to believe? You're a sinner. That's right. That's right. And at the end of me sharing the gospel, and of you being persuaded by the method that I use to share the gospel, what's the, what's the great end if that happens? Like, if that all makes sense to you, what, what, what are we shooting for? What am I shooting for? Yeah. Heaven for who? For you. That's right. The person I'm sharing the gospel with. Exactly. So the whole idea is that you're a sinner. And generally this goes, you're a sinner, right? Sin deserves hell. Would you like to go to hell? Anyone? No. Okay, well, you don't have to go to hell. That's the good news of Jesus, is that you don't have to go to hell. You don't have to burn forever. You can actually go to heaven. Would you like to go to heaven instead of hell where you burn forever? Yeah. All right. Well, you need to put your faith in Christ then, which means you need to believe that you can't earn your way to heaven, that there's no other way except him. Put your faith in Jesus and believe that he is the way to life. Turn from your sins, repentance, which is an important part of this whole thing. Turn from your sins, follow Christ, and then, uh, you know, put your faith in him and then you go to heaven. So, there you have it. That's, that's the gospel. That, that's the gospel. But it's not the gospel. Because there's, there's missing points. So, here's a way I think that we look at the scriptures. I think we've been trained and taught that the scriptures begin in Genesis 3 and end in Revelation 20. This is a great thought. I learned from uh, a friend of ours. His name's Andy Crouch. He wrote some books, read some articles. He's a friend of Netzer. Um, it just blew my mind when, when I learned this. The, folks, look at me. If you don't hear anything else I say today, hear this. The Bible does not start at Genesis 3. Sin is not the beginning. Right? If sin is the beginning, and if the Bible begins at Genesis 3, what's the first thing that we see God saying to his people? Where are you? Where are you? Right? He's in the garden looking for them. 
If the Bible starts in Genesis 3, then it actually starts with who? Right? No. It actually starts with, who's the first person mentioned in Genesis 3? The serpent. Yeah. If the Bible starts in Genesis 1, who's the first one mentioned? Right? That's a, that's a pretty big distinction. We see it work down like this. We see God, right, if we start in Genesis 1, create a temple, the world, for him to come down and dwell with his children, who he creates in his own image, and who live to be at rest and in communion with him. That's the garden experience. Now, it does get thwarted by sin, but sin is not the beginning. Sin is not the starting point. Genesis 3 is not where the Bible ends. If we end the Bible at Revelation 20, what do we see? We see a bunch of people in heaven, which is sort of like, yay. You know, you didn't go to hell. Congratulations. You know, you, you made it. You're here. But if the scriptures end at Revelation 21 and 22, what's the actual end of the gospel then? A new heaven and a new earth. So God isn't just saving you from hell. God is actually remaking this whole big story. What broke when sin came? That temple broke when sin came. I mean, the earth fell. The serpent becomes crafty and deceitful. I mean, everything falls apart. Death then comes into the picture. Revelation 20, 21 and 22, Revelation 20, we see a bunch of people in heaven worshiping God, but 21 and 22 is that God remakes this whole thing that was broken. So the story does not begin with sin. It begins with God and a whole beautiful relationship between humans and the one who created them. And then we see in Revelation 21 and 22, the salvation and the redemption of all things. Everything is made new. Everything is better. God puts everything back the way that it should be. Not doesn't just put it back, but actually makes it better. Redeemed humanity is more glorious than, or I'm sorry, redeemed humanity is, is more glorious than original humanity. Like th- this is this incredible story that God has for us. But when you start with the gospel, starting with something that's not God himself, then we start on the wrong foot completely. What is the gospel? The gospel is the fact that Jesus came. But the church's obsession with who is going to heaven or not going to heaven will completely thwart your understanding of 1 John. Our obsession with who is going to heaven and who's not going to heaven will completely thwart your understanding of 1 John. 1 John is absolutely concerned with confidence and assurance that you are in Christ and that Christ is in you. It is all about the believer being 100% boldly confident in who Jesus is and who they are in Christ. A lot of us would call that eternal security. The book of 1 John is not about eternal security. And we'll get to that in a few months. We'll take a pause and we'll talk a lot about that. The book of 1 John is not about the book of 1 John is about assurance. The book of 1 the book of 1 John is about you and I knowing God. But our obsession with who's going to heaven and who's not will will absolutely kill the point of what first 
of what First John is going for. John is concerned that his little children, which he calls them all the time as he writes, and his beloved, which he calls them all the time as he writes, know God. Right? He is concerned that his beloved know God. And that they walk in assurance that their relationship with Jesus is as real as John's relationship with Jesus. The followers of Jesus that John leads are perfectly confident that John had and has an incredible relationship with Jesus. You know, John stands bold-faced. John's the one who went to the temple in Diana in church history, right? And tore down spiritually this, this, uh, uh, this idol who had been standing for, for centuries as people would come and offer sacrifices to this idol. John went in and said, uh, this fortress, this, this stronghold of the enemy is defeated. The next morning, the priest of Diana came in to serve. Do you know what had happened? Diana had fallen, had been broken, and her hands and feet had been broken off and placed on the threshold of the temple. Right? And nobody had been there. Right? John stands in unbelievable authority when it comes to a relationship with Christ, the beauty of the gospel, the work of Jesus, who it is that he is, and what it is for them to know him and to be in him. So this brings us full circle then. This brings us full circle then back to the question. What is the gospel? Right? What is the gospel? Because the gospel is the story of Jesus. And John is concerned that the followers of Jesus know God. Not that they know that they're going to heaven. John is not concerned at all with whether or not anyone is going to heaven or not. John is deeply concerned that these people know God. So, what is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus. Alright, I'm going to ask you the question. What is the gospel? That's right. The gospel is Jesus. Tell your neighbor, the gospel is Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. The gospel is not salvation. Everybody get that? The gospel is not salvation. The gospel is Jesus. The gospel may lead to salvation, but the gospel is always Jesus. At the beginning and end of the day, the gospel is the story of Christ. It is the fact that Jesus lived, that he died, he was buried, and he rose again according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. And no matter if you and I ever receive it, or walk in it, or want to live by it, or whatever, the gospel stands untainted. It cannot be touched by anything, because Jesus cannot be touched by anything. Right? It can, he cannot be watered down. Right? Nor does he ever need to be made relevant. We talk about making the, the, making the gospel relevant. Talking about making the gospel relevant is basically like saying, how do you make water wet? It's, it's water. So it's wet. The gospel is relevant to every situation in every way because the gospel is Jesus. The gospel may lead a person to salvation, but the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus stand untouched for all time as the thing that you must walk through in order to know God, which is what he is concerned about. This is about knowing God. This is not about being saved. Right? You, will, you will see very, very little speech from John about salvation. 
you will see so much about knowing, because that's what he's concerned with, is knowing God. And the assurance that a person can have by whether or not they know God. So, I'm going to keep going because it's all going to come together. We have turned the gospel into salvation, and we've turned salvation into decisionism, right? which is a word that Scott McKnight made up that I borrowed. Right? Decisionism, which is basically we've taken the gospel. Now, now the, the gospel itself is, is what? The story of Jesus. Right? What's the gospel? Jesus. That's right. Life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel. We take that gospel, and we put it into some nice points. And I'm not saying these are bad. Don't get me wrong. Right? I can stand up here and preach a persuasive method on the gospel and call for a decision, and that's absolutely legitimate and fine. We see that all the time in the book of Acts. We see that down through church history. Nothing wrong with that. What we do need to understand, though, is that while conversion is important, the story is more important. Because you and I walking someone to a point of decision is not our job. Conversion is not our job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. So let's not put the cart before the horse here. Right? Let's not get all proud that we're somehow in some active way changing a person's heart and spirit and speaking to that and being like, okay, so now do you want to pray this prayer? Great. You know, and because I've gotten there before with people, I don't know about you, completely manipulatively. You know, where it's all about, would you like to burn in hell? No. Okay, great. Well, then you can pray this prayer. And if you pray this prayer, then you know that you won't burn in hell anymore and you'll get to go to heaven. And then after that person prays that prayer, it's then sort of like, well, now what? Well, now you got to read your Bible, and now you should pray. You should find a church to be a part of. Um, what else? You should be baptized. And there's all of these things that you can go through to sort of like stay here at this point of belief. And then that person walks out from that situation. They start to walk these things out. A storm hits their life, right? Something that they didn't want, didn't ask for. They don't know how to handle and then it's sort of like, well, who's God now that things aren't good? And I come back, and they come back to me, or, or I find them, and I generally will say something like this. Look, you just need to have faith in Jesus. If you really meant it, if you really believed back then, then you don't have anything to worry about now. Because you know that you were given eternal security in Christ. Right? Because um, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Are you sure? Yes, like you really mean it, that you really believe. I think so. Good. Good. Then that means you don't have anything to worry about when it comes to whether or not you're going to heaven. Because that's the great thing, right? Is that you can go through all the crap in the world right now, but you get to go to heaven someday. So just buck up. Just have faith. Just just walk it out. You know, it'll be okay. You know, But it's not okay. It's not okay. And me saying that because you believed back then or did something back then, means that your great hope is that eventually you get to get out of here? Does anyone see that in Scripture? No. The hope that we have, even when it comes to eternal life, is that one day there will be a resurrection of our bodies. So it's not even about an escape from the world as much as it is a transformation into glorious freedom. Jesus is, is, is so focused on thy kingdom come, thy will be done, Where? on earth, as it is in heaven. And that's what we're called to as well. And that's what John calls the people to as well. John's concern 
John's, John's deep concern here is that the gospel stays the gospel because the gospel is getting twisted. The gospel is getting mixed up. And because it's getting mixed up, that means that people are beginning to misunderstand not just who Jesus is, but who God himself as their creator, God as their lover, God is the one who takes care of them, God is their hope, is also all getting mixed up as well. And it's because so much has gotten twisted in what the gospel is and what it means for the people of God to know the gospel and to walk in the gospel. This gets twisted for us in that we just push for decisions. We just we make the gospel equated to salvation and then just get people to buy in on some point or another. Uh, most of evangelism today is obsessed with getting someone to make a decision. The apostles, however, were obsessed with making disciples. There's a big difference between a decision maker and a disciple. Anybody can make a decision in an emotional moment. But when it comes to actually following and walking out Jesus on the ins and outs of your life, that's disciple. McKnight says a couple other things that I wanted to bring you back that have to do with this thought, that he's concerned that they know God and walk in assurance. He makes this point, focusing youth events, retreats, and programs on persuading people to make a decision disarms the gospel, it distorts numbers, and diminishes the significance of discipleship. Our method of persuasion and the gospel are not the same things. Methods shift and conform to the needs of the evangelist and the audience. Right? The gospel is Jesus himself. John is concerned that the people that he writes to, that they know, that they know God. He is not concerned with fire insurance that they're not going to burn someday. And he is concerned that they know God. So John is actually calling the community that he writes to to engage this for real and to actually say that person who's saying that false thing about God doesn't know God. And when you begin to walk in this, like this is when salvation becomes different. I remember I was talking to a friend. I forget who it was. This is years ago. And, um, but it was another pastor. And we were talking back and forth about, um, uh, a situation happening here in Lebanon that had to do with, uh, like a, a distortion in the gospel and a distortion in what it means for us to, um, you know, carry out the gospel and to speak the gospel in a way that's life-giving to people instead of shame-based theology. Anyway, it was a good discussion, and I was talking to this guy, and we were talking about this other situation, and I just simply said, because I thought it was true, I said, I think the real problem here is, is that they don't know God. And he was like, that's arrogant. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you can't say that. You don't have the right to say who knows God and who doesn't know God. I think First John would beg to differ. I don't think I should say that lightly, and I didn't say that lightly. But what that guy heard me say was that those people aren't in the family of faith. What that guy heard me say was that those people are going to hell. That those people aren't saved. I have no idea whether or not they're saved. Uh, it's not really my concern to know whether or not they're going to heaven or hell after they die. What I do know is that the gospel that they were speaking was evidential of the fact that they were twisting the work of Christ on the cross. And I, I think in 1 John, I have the right at that point to say, they don't know God. 
because they don't know him. It's not that they get saved. It's not that they pray a prayer back then or anything like that. It's that the God that we see, they're not speaking of him. They don't, they don't know him. Like, maybe they'll grow. I mean, heck, I've no, I no doubt people have said this about me. You know, no doubt that, that I have done this too. I'm not trying to be arrogant here at all. What I am trying to say is that a growth in knowledge of God and a representative way that I bring Jesus to a person, I need to be very careful that the gospel stays the gospel. Because the moment that I inject anything else into that, the moment that I shame someone into believing in Jesus, the moment that I scare someone into believing in Jesus, the moment that I manipulate emotionally someone to believing in Jesus, then I have crossed a boundary that shows that I don't know who God is because that's not how God works. God doesn't work manipulatively. God doesn't shame people into relationship. God invites. God loves, right? So the, the moment that I cross those boundaries, I, there's no doubt that I've not known God. And I think there's grace for that. Huge amounts of grace for it. But to say that we might know God and to live our lives being aware of what is actually going on and being able to see what the gospel is clearly and to say that's not the gospel. People that proclaim that false gospel, false teachers that bring that false gospel, do not know God. That is every bit within the realm of authority that you have as a believer in Jesus. Listen to what John says. Ready? I'm going to just read you a litany of verses here. I'm going to give you this, the numbers. 2-3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. That's chapter 2. 2.13, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. 2.14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. 2.18, therefore we know that this is the last hour. 2.20, you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. You get that? You all have knowledge. What did Justin tell us last week that Gnostics say? We have special knowledge. We have the knowledge that you haven't come to yet. You haven't been enlightened. John says that if you have the anointing of the Holy One, which we know is the Holy Spirit, that you all have special knowledge. Will anybody tell you you don't know Christ? I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. 2.29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason the world does not know us is because it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 
we know that we have passed out of death into life. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he gave us. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us of his spirit. John's concern here is the relational, intimate, dynamic with Jesus that transforms a person to proclaim the fullness of who he is. And it's false teaching that says that Jesus is not who we know Jesus to be through the gospel that was declared to us, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, is not the gospel. And to proclaim that gospel is to not know God. So since this is John's great concern, how can his little children live with great assurance and confidence? This takes us back to what Justin taught us last week about these four heresies. Right? The gospel is trying to get distorted. This false teaching is coming. And I hope you were listening at the end when Justin taught last week when he brought out the same way that these distortions of Jesus come into truth and to life into our lives here. We think about things that end in ISM as either philosophies that we shouldn't engage with our heads or of historical things that happened in the past. But these things and false teachings and the way that we live Christ in our lives can affect us as much today as they ever have in church history. So these four heresies of dualism, Gnosticism, Docetism, and Serinthianism, the idea in dualism that, you know, good and evil, God and Satan, basically equal on two sides of things. Gnosticism, this special knowledge, you know, that the body is bad, the spirit is good, which leads to all kinds of problems. I mean, John is saying that all of these things have the same thing at the core, that the gospel gets distorted, that Jesus himself gets distorted, that Jesus is not who he actually says he is. So that begs the question, in the midst of all these deceptions, how can you walk in solid assurance that you really know God? How can you walk in solid assurance that you really know God? What if somebody smarter than you believes Gnosticism and can run circles around you when it comes to like an argument? How do we deal with that? You know who the best Gnostic alive today is? Oprah. Oprah is queen of of Gnosticism. This special enlightenment, this divine spark within you that you just need to get in touch with, you know, and the other things in your life, eventually, you know, you you can sort of like If you give in to those things, it's not a big deal, you know, but you just keep pushing for this divine spark, and by this divine spark, you can get this great enlightenment, you can get this great knowledge, and then living that great knowledge, which she has, by the way, right, then when you line up and become in tune with that special knowledge, then you're in. In where? Who knows? Is there any Jesus in this? Well, yeah, Jesus is awesome. So is Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad, whatever path it is that you like and whatever path it is that you like and you like, 
Right? It's all about getting that special knowledge. And so if this, if, if coming over here and if having an orgy and then going out and, you know, and, and, and hating your brother, you know, hating this certain class of people, but love this other certain class of people, if that's the journey that you need to go to to get to this special knowledge, fine. That's great. If what it means is that you rob yourself of everything in life and you don't let any beauty or comfort or anything come into your life and you live completely ascetic and removed from the world and if that's your path to special knowledge, great. You know, wonderful. Write books about it and come on here and be in the book club and do all these different kinds of things. But in the long run, this is about achieving some special knowledge that does not have Christ at its core. Glad to have Jesus apart. Good man. Good teacher. Very cool. Loved people. Gave himself selflessly. That does not know God. Right? Right? That is a false gospel. Prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel only works if you're an American. Right? That is a false gospel. We'll get to more of these as we go through this thing, but this... This concept, you need to realize, you are living in this. This is not something in the past. These things are hunting you now. These false teachings, these false realities, these ways of twisting Jesus. John is calling you to something deeper. So how can you know that you live in assurance? That you can actually stand against these things and say, no, that's not Jesus. I know God, and that's not God. So John offers three tests. We hate this. Americans hate this. I'm telling you, you're going to hate this, right? Because this is just sort of like, you know, don't, don't tell me what I have to be. I'm not. Read your text. You know, like, th- this is three tests, three tests. The first test is a theological test. Do you believe that Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Most High God? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of of the Most High God? Do you believe that he is who he claimed to be? Like C.S. Lewis said, don't tell me that Jesus was a good teacher. Don't tell me he was a good man. Either Jesus was a lunatic, crazy, or he was the world's greatest liar and not a good man, or he was who he actually claimed to be, which is the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. So we'll see John offer this test multiple times. Any, he says, any spirit that says that Jesus is not the Christ, the Son of the Most High God, is the spirit of, you ready for this? Antichrist. Can you think of a stronger word that he could have chosen? Right, this is the spirit of Antichrist. This theological test, this distinction, to not believe this is Antichrist. In other words, it is the opposite of who Jesus says he is. So don't step toward Christ and say, I'm all about Jesus, or I love Jesus, or Jesus is cool with me, without also confessing that he is the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. Theological test. Second is a moral test. Do you live the righteousness of Jesus following his commands? Do you live the righteousness of Jesus following his commands? Because it's easy to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Totally. That's great. But then we treat it like fire insurance. Like, okay, so I'm not going to hell anymore. I'm going to live my life doing whatever the heck it is that I want to do. Right? I'm going to you know, just run around making my own decisions, not submitting to the commands of Christ. Or do you seek to live according to the commands of Jesus? 
A lot of you are sitting here already in self-judgment and condemnation. Like, like I, I, I sinned this morning. <laughs> Bummer. You know, so much for knowing God. We'll take a look at that, all right? We'll take a look at what John is talking about. John is not talking about the fact that you fail. John is talking about who are you when you fail? And how do you respond when you fail? What made David a man after God's own heart was not that he was clean, right? I mean, far from it. Adulterer, murderer, liar, thief of other men's wives. You know, I mean, dude crossed some serious lines. What made him a man after God's own heart was not that he didn't sin. It was how he responded to God when he did sin. It was that he was aware and he was humble. What John says over and over is the one who keeps on sinning. Like if you can look at sin and say, Jesus, I'm going to do this because this isn't sin. You don't know God. Right? You don't know God. Lastly, it's a social and ethical one. Do you love one another? Third test, do you love one another? It is not okay on any level in John's concept of the gospel to say that I love God, but I hate you. Or to say, I love God, but I'm indifferent to you, which is actually what hate is. Right? True hate is indifference. You know, for me to, um, for me to, if you ever had done this, I won't even use you today, Jake. I'll just use a random example because I don't, I don't want to, I love Jake. I love all you people, so I can't use anyone here. Um, you know, I could use the Dallas Cowboys as just a, a group, all right? Um, <laughs> a corporate identity. Um, but I probably shouldn't do that either. Hate is a very strong form of love. Hate as we think of it, like a vociferous, boiling anger. That is a very strong form of love. That person is getting a lot of your attention. Right? I mean, there's a lot of focus that's going there. If love is, you know, you and me connecting like this, hate, as we think of it, this boiling anger, is you and me connecting like this. It's just me hating you while I do it. Oh, I hate that person. And, oh, I see them, and I hate them, and I think about them, and I hate them. And you know, I think about what they did, and I hate them. And you know, ah. True hate is indifference. True hate is a, you're not alive. You're not, you're not, you're not here. You're not around. Your existence is other when you and I forget about our brothers and sisters who suffer under severe persecution in the Middle East or China, we hate them. Because they're our family. We're connected to them. Right? And we would never say we hate those people, but the indifference, the, the, the inability to see beyond myself, this is a big deal in American culture. Because we choose who's in and we choose who's out and we love accordingly. And then we don't hate other people. We just are indifferent to them. They're just around. And the poor, eh, we'll have them with us always, Jesus said. So they're just around. Really. I think John begs to differ. What's the gospel? Jesus is the gospel. That's right. The life, death, burial, and resurrection according to the scriptures. That is the gospel. The gospel may lead to salvation, but it is always the gospel. Salvation is not the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. And John is concerned that you stand confidently with assurance saying, I know him. And when a Gnostic says, no, you don't, you need special knowledge, I say, you can get behind me, Satan. That's Jesus so eloquently said. Because that's not the gospel. And, and you don't know God. 
When somebody comes and says, eh, there's just two forces in life, and good and bad, and morality is sort of like whichever one you fall into. That's just you. No? Get behind me. Move out of the way. I am going to know God. I, I am going to stand in assurance and confidence in who he is and who I am in him. Because he is the gospel. He is the story. He is the good news. And he is all that I need. Anything else must go. Anything else must go. Because he alone has the word of life. Because Jesus brings this in such a unique way. And that's what we'll talk about next week when we're together. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this deep stir in who God is and who you are and who Jesus is and what the gospel is. God, keep us from thinking wrongly about who you are. Keep us from believing the wrong thing. Keep us from living the wrong ways. Keep us from hating our brothers and sisters. God, open for us your heart that we might live in it. Open for us your story that we might truly know you. For each one of my brothers and sisters, I pray for a deep, confident assurance that you are theirs and they are yours and that there is nothing that can tear that away. Now we speak that in Jesus' name. You belong to Jesus. Jesus is yours. The Holy Spirit is within you. And there is nothing that can take that away. We stand in confident assurance that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of the Most High God, and live according to His commands and His ways, not according to the principles of this world or the principles of our religious systems, but according to the way of Jesus. And we choose to love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of First John is a book of defense of the gospel and a book of invitation to know God more. It's not meant to take and to go out and start attacking everyone around you. <laughs> this is an invitation, and this journey that we'll be going through at Cornerstone in First John is an invitation for you and I to know God more deeply, like to know him more deeply to know the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ more and more concretely and experientially in our lives so that we might live that. 1 John 5, verses 19 to 21. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. God, thank you for the assurance that we have in Christ. Thank you for the understanding that you have given us in Jesus. 
Thank you that we know him who is true, that we are in him who is true, that we are in your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true God. Jesus is eternal life. So God, those other things that we worship, those other things that distract us, the false teachings, the false beliefs, the false lifestyles, these are the idols that we sacrifice again. And we thank you for the work that you are doing. Draw us more and more deeply to knowing you and to being people who are transformed by and proclaiming the gospel that Jesus Christ lived, that he died, he was buried, and he rose again according to the scriptures. That is our victory, that is our freedom, and that is our assurance. In Jesus' name, amen.